The United States and the Republic of Korea have been celebrating the 70th anniversary of the alliance and the 120th anniversary of Korean immigration to the United States throughout 2023. Along with our military and economic partnership, people-to-people -people ties have served as a central pillar of our multifaceted relationship. Both those who have practiced diplomacy and ordinary people through their personal and professional connections have contributed to the close and ever-deepening relationship our two countries enjoy today. On December 11, 2023, KEI hosted a discussion between current and former ambassadors about how public diplomacy has expanded the diplomatic horizons of our alliance and how it will help the two countries and their people achieve a secure and prosperous future. We're asking our panelists to go ahead and seat themselves on stage. And uh, welcome to everyone here and everyone joining us online. Uh, and especially, of course, welcome to Ambassador Cho Hyun Dong. We're so uh, honored that you would join us today. Uh, my name is Kathleen Stevens. I'm president of KEI. Uh, and um, Siking, today is uh, what in Korea we used to call, I guess they still call it, Seonnun. Am I saying it right? First, first snow which um, I seem to remember from a long time ago meant you, you, it might be the day you, could, you would meet your first love, if you haven't already. Lies will be forgiven. That's important. Uh, you must buy a drink for somebody else. But you still have time, right? I'm doing a little cultural diplomacy here. Um, and uh, your wish will come true. So my wish has been to have a reunion with some of the people here on stage and with some of you here in the audience as we still come back to our, our in-person format over the course of this year. Uh, and today uh, feels very special uh, to me because we are coming to the end of a year um, when we've been marking 70 years of the U.S.-Korea alliance. I'm still wearing my tag, 70. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, when I walk down the street, people say, oh, you don't look that old. I said, well, I well, I am actually, but yeah, <laughs> but, but it kind of matches. <laughs> um, but seriously, uh, 70 years, of course, since the signing of the Mutual Defense Treaty in 1953 between the United States and the Republic of Korea, uh, it's been a year of, of celebration, but also reflection on all that we've been through together, all that faces us now that we need to work on together. Uh, and um, and we really appreciate the partnership here at KEI that we've enjoyed with the Korean Embassy. Uh, this is the second formal event that we've done jointly, so thank you for the support from the Embassy uh, for this program. Uh, and I think it's very appropriate that we are looking at expanding our horizons through public diplomacy. Um, so I did not consult chat GPT today because I still don't know how to do that but I did consult Wikipedia because uh, one of the problems I've always had, I, I confess, and at one point in my kind of uh, strange career as a diplomat, I was the acting undersecretary for public diplomacy, but I could never really define it. Um, so Wikipedia has a definition and we have experts here. And it says in international relations, public diplomacy, broadly speaking, is any of the various government sponsored efforts aimed at communicating directly with foreign publics to establish a dialogue designed to inform and influence with the aim of building support for the state's strategic objectives. Uh, there won't be an exam on this afterwards. But 
I think it, it does, you know, there's been some thinking about what we mean by that, but I think really broadly today, we are looking at the importance of publics, public opinion, uh, in this very, very important, complicated relationship, in, in this case, that the United States and Republic of Korea have. And on our panel today, we have lots of experience in diplomacy writ large in Korea and elsewhere around the world. Um, I remember, I'm not going to be too long here, but there was a British diplomat named Harold Nicholson who in the early 20th century uh, wrote a book which I called Diplomacy. And he fretted in the book, he said, public opinion is, is interfering with diplomacy. Oh, no. It's becoming, you know, this is, this is not right. You know? But, you know, I think we could say for the U.S.-Korea relationship, you know, public attitudes, public opinion has always been an extremely important part of the relationship, of the alliance, of our trade relationship, of everything. And again, I'm not going to recite all the history of that. But I'm also going to note that I think both governments, since this kind of public diplomacy, we're implying there's a government role, the American government over the years and the South Korean government of the year have, years have had their uh, efforts uh, at a broader diplomacy than the sort of traditional diplomacy or the, if you like, the traditional security-related or trade-related diplomacy. Um, on the U.S. side, over many years, we had American cultural centers uh, in South Korea going way back even before the Korean War. Um, we funded the United States government, uh, numerous organizations, uh, both U.S. government organizations and private. Uh, the Asia Foundation is one that did things in cultural diplomacy early on, like funding uh, filmmakers, training them and sending them to film conferences. Uh, education and scholarships, of course, a big, big part of it. Um, in 2009, when I was in, I have, to, I have to have one sentence that says, when I was ambassador in Korea, um, along with uh, then National Assemblyman Park Jin, we inaugurated something called the West Program, uh, work, education, and study, st work, work, English education, English study, and thank you, I, I mean, Marine really said, and travel. And it was basically to allow a larger variety of Korean uh, young people to come here for an experience who weren't coming here for full degrees. And actually, our new intern here at um, Mr. Jung uh, just arrived today, his first day, a West program. So a decade later, we're so happy to see West going strong and many, many others, which maybe we'll get into some today. And I would say the other part of what I see is kind of the U.S. government action, I suppose, is sometimes it's not so much in funding programs, but it's in the way that we adapt our um, our laws, whether intentional or not. Uh, and of course, because I would also point to the growth of the Korean diaspora, the Korean community in the United States is such an important part of what has transformed the relationship between Korea and the United States. And much of that wouldn't have been possible with the amendment of the Immigration Act in 1964. So, and on the Korean side, again, we have people who can speak to that today, but great activity over the years uh, to try to increase awareness in the United States of Korea understand it, how it's transformed. And uh, I look forward to discussion of that as well, of, of whom, of course, we have some leading practitioners here. But what we see today, of course, and is in both countries, polling is very strong. There's strong support it's at historic levels for the relationship. And there are a lot of factors in that, but I do think that whether we call it people to people or public diplomacy, that really has built a foundation which gives the relationship, the alliance, a great deal of resilience, as well as capacity in areas that we are only beginning to work in going forward. So today, I really do see this as a, a way of capping off this year 
uh, by recognizing, first and foremost, I guess, I mean, all that's been accomplished over the last 70 years, but within that, again, how important the, again, what I'll call people-to-people -people ties, for lack of a better word, how important they have been and will be in the future into what we aspire to do together. So with that, I want to invite Ambassador Cho Hyun Dong, the 28th Ambassador of the Republic of Korea to the United States of America, to speak but I have to say a few words about him first. Um, he's been here in Washington, not for the first time. He's had many assignments here, but he's been here as ambassador uh, since April, 2023. Uh, he was the first vice minister for foreign affairs before that, but he got here just in time for a, a great exercise in public diplomacy, among other things. And that was, of course, the state visit between of, of President Yoo Sung-yeol to uh, President Biden at the White House. Uh, Ambassador Cho has had, again, many assignments over the years, but what I'm going to highlight here is that he was public diplomacy ambassador uh, at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, a few years ago and uh, has his own thoughts and own expertise on that. And Ambassador Joe, if you don't mind, I'm also going to mention, because I know we always have a lot of people, on young people online who think about careers and diplomacy and how you get there and so on. And I noted on your resume that your major in university was Spanish, but I don't think you ever served in a Spanish-speaking country, although I would include the United States now as a Spanish-speaking country. But I just sort of say it to say, and I, I think you'll see that with the experience we have here on the stage, and I know from the audience, you don't know what direction you know you're you're going to go, and the world is going to go. But uh, but but skills in foreign languages in in a variety of areas can serve us well wherever we are, and we're certainly very privileged to have Ambassador Cho now as our Korean ambassador to the United States. Ambassador Cho. Wow. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Well, Ambassador Stevens, Cassie, thank you so much for your wonderful introduction. Uh, I'm delighted to join you, so many good friends, for today's event. Uh, this is the last in a kind of year-long series celebrating the 70th anniversary of our alliance. As um, Ambassador Stevens said, I think first snow makes today even more special. Well, to begin, I'd like to thank Ambassador Stevens and her team at KI for organizing. As we approach the year's end, today's discussion is opportunity to reflect on our public diplomacy effort, an integral part of our work. I also wanted to thank uh, today's panelists, distinguished ambassadors from the United States and, and Korea, Ambassador Kim, Ambassador Komek, Ambassador Heflin, and uh, my friend and best friend here from Korea, for joining us today. Uh, President Yoon's four separate visits into the United States this year alone showed how our partnership has expanded. We have um, evolved from a military alliance to a comprehensive collaboration encompassing economics, science, and technology among all walks of people from both our countries. Our alliance has withstood the test of time, thanks in large part to our shared values and our many close individual relationships and our cultural affinity and the favorable perception we both have toward each other. Uh, examples of our closeness are ubiquitous. Korean students are the third largest group of foreign students in the United States, following Chinese and Indians. As the Korean language is now the third most played language in the U.S. music market, after, after English and Spanish. 
Yeah. Ambassador Stevens highlighted another interesting fact at KI event last week. While the number of Americans studying other foreign languages is declining, there has been a noticeable increase in people seeking to learn Korean. Cooperation between our business community is also more active than ever. Over the last year, Korea has become first in the number of large-scale investment plans in the United States, while the U.S. is Korea's second largest trading partner. Also, recent public opinion polls show that our people view each other favorably. So I think today we are closer than ever, even emotionally and psychologically. As the BBC noted, the popularity of cultural phenomenon create a virtuous cycle. In our case, the popularity of K-pop, drama, and films increased interest in other aspects of Korean culture, including food, language, and fashion. The popularity of K-pop bands like BTS shaped American public opinion toward Korea in a positive way, far surpassing any government initiatives. That's something I can personally attest to. This is my third instinct working in Washington, and Americans now perceive Korea dramatically different than they did when I was last here. So let me tell you a story. Um, Ten years ago, when I was DCM at the embassy, the first wave of K-pop hit the world, including the United States. It was Gangnam Style by Tsai. <laughs> So Gangnam Style reached number two at the main chart, of Billboard main chart. So I was waiting, waiting, waiting for Gangnam Style to make the top, but it didn't. And after several weeks, it began dropping. An American band kept the top for a couple of months. It was Maroon 5. I never forget that. But years later, BTS made it top <laughs> the Billboard main chart. But actually, um, so far, BTS made uh, six number one at Billboard chart, 10 top tens, and 27 songs in the 100 list. It was amazing. But I should also mention here America's um, newest emerging Korean style icon. His name is Yoon Sung Yeol. You know who it is? <laughs> I'm talking about my president. So along with the K-pop band Nugent, he was recognized last week by the New York Times as one of the 71 most stylish people oh. of 2023. Yeah. Everyone knows why. Right? Yeah. So therefore, I look forward to our panel's discussion today on how we can best utilize public diplomacy as a foreign policy tool. Each of the panelists bring their own valuable on-the-ground experience as well as vast knowledge of politics and culture of both Korea and the United States. You also understand how, the, how to use public diplomacy to connect our people in a new and dynamic way. So far, I focused uh, on the more fun and entertaining part of public diplomacy. However, I hope uh, the panel also share this insight into its more geopolitical element. Uh, for example, I'd love to hear your thought about how to address strategic communication and counter disinformation, coupled with advancement in digital media, including AI technology. 
We all know that securing public support is crucial for foreign policy. Yet the flow of disinformation had made this more complicated. We also know that uh, foreign information manipulation is a grave transnational threat that undermines our democracy. To respond, we must consider how more strategic policy messaging will enhance public engagement method. Last week, Korea and the US inaugurated the first ever high-level public diplomacy dialogue. I understand it is the first of its kind for the US, and I know it is the first time for us too. Following the dialogue, we signed an MOU pledging to cooperate in countering disinformation. So I applaud our forethought in starting this brand new process. I hope today's timely event is another catalyst in advancing this cooperation. So on the ground experience and insight you share today will provide us an opportunity to reflect on direction of public diplomacy in the, in the coming years. So I look forward to hearing your advice and recommendations, and um, I hope I will be part of that. Thank you very much. Joe, uh, that was excellent. And I'm, I'm very glad you mentioned uh, that the other part of this being so timely, which we didn't expect when we scheduled this, that uh, our Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy from the United States would be in Seoul for this, uh, this new dialogue. And I think this issue of disinformation, the media landscape that we're in now, is something we certainly want to address. Uh, I'm so happy to have to all of you here and to have this great panel, which is a little bit, as you could, some of you could tell, kind of like a reunion for some of us. Um, and my, my, my only uh, uh, hesitation here is how to organize this, because I really do want to have a conversation among us all and with you. Uh, one thing Ambassador Sungji has, has, has mentioned to me a number of times, which is really a, a great insight, is that part of Korean soft power is that everything involves the audience, right? So, so I, I want to involve the audience uh, in this as well. Uh, but uh, but we, we we're a panel, and uh, uh, I want to have some some uh, sh shape to this. So what I'm going to do is is do a very brief introduction of each of our panelists for those of you who don't know them. I, those I, I think you've all seen online. We've we've distributed their full bios. I'm not going to read big bios, but we'll go down. Then I'm going to just sort of ask each of them to say a few words. I've got some kind of opening questions to kind of get the idea of the range of experience here and the range of insights uh, that we could bring to bear on this, uh, given this group, and then go from there with the conversation. So, so first, I'm just going to turn to my immediate left and, and, and welcome Ambassador Yuri Kim, who is the Prin Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs. I did that in one breath. Uh, and uh, she has had uh, and is having, I mean, an extraordinary career. Uh, I first met her in Korea uh, about 15 years ago. She served in Korea, China, Japan, Turkey, Iraq. Uh, where else have I missed? And of course, and of course, ambassador to Albania. Uh, and last time I saw Yuri, that was I was it was was when. But this gets into the, maybe the question I'm going to ask you in a minute. Was when uh, uh, she had just been sworn in. And uh, she had her friends and family from Guam here in Washington. And we all went out to Udeok, which just closed now, I understand, uh, for a celebration. So your story itself it says a lot about diplomacy and, and, well, a lot of things. And so I, I want to get into that with you. Um, 
Sonjie, uh, I think is well known to many of you here. We had her as a guest just a few days ago, and she's been barnstorming in the United States in her, uh, her new position as the uh, ambassador of the Republic of Korea for Cultural Cooperation. She was CNN's uh, first correspondent uh, uh, in Seoul, resident in Seoul from 1995 until 2010, president of Arirang Television, which I'm sure you've all seen, and teaches at Ihua and does a number of different things. But uh, Ambassador Sohn, it's nice to be able to call you ambassador and to have you back. Uh, Maureen Cormack, also ambassador, very recently retired ambassador Maureen Cormack, uh, was uh, a, a public diplomacy officer and more uh, in the United States Foreign Service for many years. Her service in Korea includes service in Gwangju in the 1990s, a spokesperson at the U.S. Embassy uh, a little bit later than that. Mm -hmm. And when I first met her deputy director on the uh, uh, Korea desk uh, at the time of the six-party talks when Yuri was also working on it. So anyway, the, the, the connections are deep here. Yes. Uh, but Ambassador Cormack also went on for many other positions, including uh, leading uh, a leading position at the Foreign Service Institute uh, and as ambassador to the Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is very challenging task and I'd be interested in another thing to see some of the lessons you might have brought from the six-party talks to negotiations that still go on in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And uh, I don't want to say last but not least, but it's not last but not least, uh, Ambassador Donald Heflin, uh, also a recently retired American Foreign Service officer. He was ambassador uh, to Cabo Verde from 2015 to 2018 and served as charge in Mexico and India has had a very distinguished foreign service career. I think we felt we had to leave in this with a little bit of outside of outside perspective, meaning outside of the Korea-US uh, deep ties we have here, and we look forward to that. And he brings obviously this deep experience, as well as now his leadership as the executive director of the Edward R. Murrow Center for Global Diplomacy at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. And if there is anybody who doesn't know who Edward R. Murrow uh, uh, was, I, I welcome uh, Ambassador Heflin uh, enlightening us all, but certainly an inspiration for public diplomacy of, of, I think, from all countries for many, many years, and still, even in this much-changed landscape. Mm -hmm. So with that, again, welcome to all of you. Forgive me for not doing justice to your uh, all of your backgrounds, but uh, looking forward to our conversation. So. Yuri, I have to get used to calling everybody ambassador. <laughs> like I think ambassador Kim. Um, we've already mentioned, of course, 70th anniversary of of the alliance. Um, it's also, I think, that I, I've been curious along. I'm really in anniversaries. It's the 120th anniversary of what's marked as the first Korean immigration to the United States in 1903. Um, now, you weren't around in 1903. <laughs> But um, but you are a bit of a pioneer, and um, and and maybe if I can be a little bit personal, it's, it means you 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 have family from Guam. Yeah. You grew up in Guam. Uh, you've been, I think, the first Korean American or first Korean American woman in just about every position that you've had. I'm, maybe there's a few where you weren't, but certainly as a uh, ambassador uh, to Albania, and you also have very deep experience in the U.S.-Korea relationship. So I just. I kind of want to get your sense about, I, I mentioned the, the growth of the Korean-American community and how that has influenced maybe the public diplomacy landscape, both for the Republic of Korea here, uh, but also for how the U.S. sees its ties with Korea and get your perspective on that. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, my family immigrated to uh, Guam in the 1970s um, because it was the only place that my father knew in America. You know, my, my, and my mother tells me that she spent the first year on Guam crying every night because she had felt she had been tricked. You know, her, her new husband promised to take her away to America and she found herself on Guam, which at that time was... Um, you know, not as developed as it is now, and it was principally all about the military. Um, and uh, growing up there um, on this little island, um, it was difficult to imagine that one day uh, I would be an American diplomat. Um, but, you know, uh, life has been kind in many ways, and so I find myself in this very privileged and special position. And what has been remarkable to me over the course of my career, um, starting in the late 90s through now, is exactly what Ambassador Stevens mentions, the transformation of global perceptions of Korea, and with that, the nature of the relationship between the United States and Korea. Um, I don't mind saying that it makes me tremendously proud to see that it is increasingly a relationship of mutual respect and admiration. And you see that coming through in the types of exchanges that we have at the leadership level, the kind of agreements that we have, um, the very fact that uh, for the first time in history, um, we have um, a trilateral relationship between the United States, Japan, and Korea. Couldn't have imagined it. Somebody had said in the 90s when we all began, or maybe a little bit earlier, but um, when we all began that uh, we'd be looking at a trilateral uh, relationship like this, you would have thought that this person was completely, um, you know, uh, in the world of uh, in fantasy. Um, and yet here we are. And I think what that speaks to is Korea's remarkable rise from the ashes of occupation, world war, um, civil war, from being one of the poorest countries in the world, in the world, in 1953, to, become, to becoming one of the richest and most active and most admired um, and most needed. And so as an American diplomat of Korean descent, I'm really proud that the relationship between the United States and Korea um, has never been stronger. And we can clearly see that there is so much room further for growth. I also have to say that um, I feel lucky to have been American ambassador at a time when Korean pop culture is on the rise as well, right? And I really, I've used it even in Albania, where teenagers would come up to me. One teenager came up to me uh, you know, she was sort of staring at me from across the way, so I went up to her and I thought, you know, maybe she's interested in diplomacy. And I introduced myself and it turned out that the reason she was looking at me and wanted to meet me was because she thought maybe I had something to do with BTS. Um, so, uh, um, but it's great. And I love that random people around the world, whether it's Albania or um, uh, you know, France or uh, Guam, my classmates who used to make fun of me and, you know, we used to kid each other, they're all learning Korean right. so that they can watch these K-dramas. Yeah, yeah. So really remarkable. 
Yeah, that's wonderful. So, that, and that's actually perfect for what I want to ask Ambassador Songjie. That's a lot of what I ask her. But thank you for those, those answers. And and that is because I see everyone nodding as you talk about uh, people on the street, literally in Albania, being interested in you because they think maybe you have a connection with Korean pop music. Um, uh, so, Jie, this is always the question. I know you get a lot, so you must have a good answer for it, but I never... I mean, how do you explain the success of the Korean cultural products? And, and was this a government-led initiative? Was this a big sort of public diplomacy plan? We're going to go out and take the world with, um, with, with K-pop. Um, yeah. To, what's, your, what's your sense on that? I wish it was a government initiative, but I don't think any single government really can take credit for a cultural boom. Because a cultural boom, I believe, is really much a reflection of its people. And I think the cultural boom that we're seeing today surrounding the Korean, um, the Korean culture, K-pop, K-drama, K-films, is really based on what we are seeing from the, the long history of the Korean people. So we're seeing what, uh, what you know, there are many ways to describe it, but I think the 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 and you there's no one reason that you can really pinpoint. But if you look at it from a broader sense, I see it as sort of a um, an evolution of the the deep history of the Korean people that have endured thousands of years of really hardships, but have um, gone through them, have endured them, have relatively um, succeeded in maintaining a unique identity, um, even though of even through thousands of years. And I believe it, it's about nine hundred six. 60 times during uh, Korea's thousands of years of history that they've been invaded by outside forces. They've only been um, conquered three times, um, most recently by um, Japan, but throughout they've been able to really um, fight to pre preserve a unique identity. And one of the recent um, reasons that Korea's really popularity has been able to thrive, I believe, is the fact that one of the most recent cultural influences was the United States. And there is a deep sense of um, democracy, you know, the, um, the respect for human rights, respect for expression of uh, freedom of expression, um, those that sort of um, uh, really lit a fire um, in a way of what Korea's cultural creativity had possessed for over thousands of years and really spread it out onto the world. I mean, people ask me that question, you know, did the Korean government really, um, you know, um, create Korea's culture? Well, if, if a government um, based on just planning and, and investment, investment and money could create the kind of popularity that we are seeing today, we would see you know, not K-pop, but maybe C-pop, you know, and we know what, what that country is. There are other countries that could have done this, but I don't, but we're not seeing that. And so there is a deep sense of um, who the Korean people are combined with, and I really do believe it, it is a um, combination of the Korean character plus um, a very deep democratic root that has been you know, what the alliance between Korea and um, the U.S. has been all about. And so it has really been able to foster a um, creative cultural um, phenomenon that we know as, as K-culture today. 
Yeah, I mean, if I may say, I mean, certainly in, in kind of my experience over the years, and, and Yuri and Marie may remember this too, is is maybe not surprisingly, Korean government bureaucrats, with, with all due respect, I was a bureaucrat too, you know, I mean, didn't really know what this was about for a while, and it took a little while, but the good news was it kind of figured it out, uh, and that, that's what I, I feel like we've seen. But, but I also do recall, like say, the 1980s when I was posted in Korea, one of our big trade issues uh, between Korea and the United States was over so-called screen quotas. I remember Jack Valenti, remember, right? You remember? Um, because the Korean government at that time was trying to protect the film market to help it develop. Now, that's a different kind of, you know, cultural diplomacy, if you like, but that's where I think government policy can play a role in these things, even if it's not, you know, uh, responsible for the creativity. The creativity had to come from... No, we might have to... Right, we yeah. may have to have a screen quota. Billion films! <laughs> Too much BTS. Yeah. The government does play a role in, in trying to nurture its um, unique cultures, and I think that's a role that many governments... Um, play and, and want to play. And I think we have um, benefited from a very um, astute um, government policy in that regard. But, you know, um, as Korea's culture industry developed, um, we have adjusted our policies. And especially, you know, when you look at the, the um, how we opened the doors to Japanese culture, which was a very difficult issue for us because it, it's entangled not just in the culture industry, but in the historical, historical area. But the, but the difficult decision was made, and it was based on the fact that we do need to open um, you know, all industries, including culture. And in the end, it really benefited making Korea's culture so much richer um, with the interaction between Korean cultures and outside cultures. Thank you. Uh, Ambassador Cormac, Maureen, um, you have such an interesting history to bring to this topic. And again, we're not going to just talk about history. We're going to kind of talk going forward, too. But it's, uh, you know, I, you, well, you had an early assignment uh, running an American center. They used to be called cultural centers in Gwangju and in Cholanamdo in the 90s. You were the press spokesperson for the embassy during uh, in, in some later years. Uh, and and then uh, of course worked in Washington on U.S. Korea affairs from the overall policy angle. So um, and did a lot after that as well. Um, but I wonder, I'd like your reflections in particular about then this topic of public diplomacy and maybe U.S. Mm -hmm. practices of public diplomacy and in, in Korea and what lessons you drew from that and going forward. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kathy, Ambassador Stevens, uh, and for you and for Ambassador Cho. It, as Yuri noted, it's so exciting to see how dynamic this U.S.-Korea relationship is now. Um, I've also been away from it for about 15 years, and to come back and see all the progress is just so exciting. It's really wonderful. Um, I arrived in Korea in January of 1990 uh, and spent my first year and a half in Seoul in various training and language training roles. Um, during a time of just extraordinary, you know, still democracy demonstrations ongoing. Our USIS center was almost burned to the ground about five months after I got there. Uh, very memorable times. Uh, and in spite of all of that, my first daughter was born in Seoul and my second daughter was born in Gwangju. So I have two little blonde, blue-eyed Korean girls, right? Um, but I moved down to Gwangju, which back then, of course, was this iconic, difficult place to work, and yet found that when I got there as an individual, people were very welcoming, right? On a human level, uh, Koreans were very kind to us. 
you know, my daughters uh, would be taken out of my arms up on, you know, Mudungsan and passed around with everyone talking about, you know, in Hyeongdo Katayo, they look like a little doll, right? Uh, I got over my panic when 15 minutes later my daughter had still not returned from the crowd, uh, but I learned it was okay. <laughs> um, but on a professional level, it was difficult. I had a staff of six very experienced Korean public diplomacy experts, 14 guards, and 200 riot police outside of my center. Makes it a little hard to do uh, public diplomacy. But we did, while I was there, go back onto the campus of Chonam University for the first time since 1980. And my staff honestly thought they were going to die. But uh, in spite of the Panmi banners hung between trees, right, all anti-American, um, you know, we were welcomed and we started, you know, as one does with the American studies groups, with people who are willing to talk to us. But during my time there, we were able to start to engage some of those uh, who were more anti-American. And, you know, certainly over the years that I've done diplomacy, in the end, it comes down to honest conversations, right? Being able not to pretend the issues don't exist, but to honestly dive into them and share perspectives. Um, during my time there, uh, Ambassador uh, Donald Gregg did come to Gwangju, the first ambassador since the 1980 incident. Uh, it was a very sort of scripted visit, but it was an important breakthrough. Uh, and he certainly understood Korea well and did a really good job. Um, and then, of course, years later, when I was back as press officer, uh, at another, at a very difficult time, I got there uh, right shortly after the, we had the incident where the two girls were run over by an army tracking vehicle. Um, and my first day on the job, Ambassador Tom Hubbard did the first ever internet media event with Oh My News. Uh, four days later, John Bolton came. That was another experience. And six weeks later, Jim Kelly walked out of Pyongyang and announced the highly enriched uranium program. And my great interlocutor was Son Jie, who was the CNN correspondent torturing me as press officer. <laughs> So it's really fun to be here together. Time. She was actually wonderful. I'm teasing. <laughs> um, but then Chris Hill came as ambassador and went down to Gwangju and was the first to go to the cemetery and the memorial. And so it, this human contact, this public diplomacy world uh, is so important. And I'll stop there, but I'd love to dive into that more going forward yeah. here. Yeah, no, that's terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And Ambassador Heflin, uh, you've heard a lot from us, and, uh, but I'd love to get your kind of broader perspective uh, from your experience at, at 35 years in the Foreign Service and now as the Executive Director of, I understand that the Edward R. Murrow Center is known as the birthplace of public diplomacy, that the, the term was actually coined there. Um, but how, how do you sort of define this area? And, and, and I'd just like to get kind of your perspective on some of the things you've, you've heard here uh, today about uh, how clearly, and I think, you know, Maureen in particular, I mean, has, has reminded all of us who know, I mean, vividly, that it, it wasn't always so great, mm -hmm. right? That we've had a lot of, a lot of issues and we can't ever take it for granted. And we're going to turn to disinformation and other challenges we face now. But uh, uh, welcome your observations, especially in terms of, I think, the relationship between two countries that have had a military alliance for a long time, but have kind of caught up, if you like, in, the, in, the, in broadening the alliance over the last several decades. Thanks. Kathleen, I agree with your Wikipedia's definition of public diplomacy, which is uh, the attempt for a government to talk directly to the citizens of another government. Uh, in the State Department, we traditionally divide that to two halves, information and cultural 
But Korea has excelled at cultural affairs. Uh, the closely related concept of soft power is defined as uh, projecting your influence through cultural and economic means. Korea's excelled at both of those. Um, the challenge, I think, for any democratic government now is the information sphere. Social media has accelerated the spread of both information and disinformation. And it's asymmetrical. I think the big challenge for democratic governments is we care very much about getting the story right because that we're slow. The trolls don't care about getting the story right, and they're very fast. So by the time, you know, typically the first response of democratic misinformation is kind of quick but watered down. We don't have enough facts. Then within two or three days, we get the hard facts out there. It's too late. We've got to learn to be much, much more nimble. The two imperatives when you're a government dealing with public information are one, always strive to be truthful, and two, be quick, and we need to be a lot quicker than we are. Um, I think that the cultural realm and the economic realm in particular have given Koreans a great image around the world, uh, very popular inside the United States, polling shows that, but very popular in a lot of other countries. I just finished up my career in India, large Korean community in the New Delhi area and the other big cities, very popular, very well thought of. But people who come in contact with the films, the music groups, uh, the television dramas, uh, come away with a warm, fuzzy feeling to begin with, kind of their default position towards South Korea is like nice people. You know, I'd like to get to know more about them. And that's really worked in the U.S. It's been true in the U.S. for a long, long time. The, the ties between the U.S. churches and the Korean people, for instance, were very strong. And that meant there was a natural base here. And that may be part of the reason that we so strongly supported Korea when we did. So uh, basically, I would say Korea gets an A-plus on its cultural diplomacy and its economic diplomacy. I think all the governments of the world are getting Bs at best in countering disinformation right now. And this is something we really need to be working on very hard. Well, maybe we should turn to that for a minute then. I, uh, I don't want to leave entirely cultural diplomacy behind because I think they are somewhat related in terms of building our audiences. But, um, but, but as, as Ambassador Joe pointed out, uh, uh, Liz Allen, who's the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy, was in, in, in Korea uh, just earlier this week or last week now, I guess. Uh, and uh, uh, disinformation, working together on that uh, was, a, was a key focus. And the other focus uh, was on how related it was was how the United States and the Republic of Korea can work together in the Indo-Pacific. I mean, you mentioned India, but work together in Southeast Asia and elsewhere. And in a sense, and this is maybe an unusual position sometimes for Americans to feel they're in, in a sense, I mean, with the U.S. kind of piggybacking on, um, on South Korea's soft power. You know, I think we always thought we were the soft power people as well as the hard power people, but that this is, uh, Korea has this uh, resonance that uh, opens up other doors. So, uh, so I, I'd welcome some comments from uh, maybe starting again with you on, on that and, and from others about, well, one, first, uh, the kind of disinformation space. Well, I think, I want to stay on cultural for a minute. I think the beauty of cultural diplomacy is it gives you pennies in the bank with the population of another country. All right? So you're out there with the cultural diplomacy. You've got the boy bands touring. You've got the films being very popular. You're not getting any immediate benefit from that. That's okay. And then one day, the mis disinformation trolls attack you. And you've got a large number of people in the U.S. and other countries who are favorably predisposed to Korea to begin with. And, and that attack doesn't work as well with them. 
and then when the Korean government comes back with its response um, a couple of days later, that same population is predisposed to give a listen to it. Okay, and it's cultural diplomacy that plants those seeds. The moderator here, but, but uh, uh, it goes back to what Ambassador Cormack was talking about too. I think in terms of, of talking to people and building trust, uh, and, and I mean connection, but also trust. And, and again, it's a long time ago now, but uh, at the time of the sinking of the South Korean uh, Corvette, the, the Chonan in 2010, there was an investigation, uh, the conclusions were reached, and I mean, some of you will remember this well. Um, uh, and, and, but there was an online campaign to undercut that. Uh, and I felt to the extent that any U.S. government official or a Korean government official could respond to that, you had to be able to respond, hopefully, from a point of view where people trusted what you had to say. And having, it's not, it's not sufficient, but it's helpful if, if there is a sense, whether you're the U.S. ambassador or the secretary of state or whoever you are, that people look at you as someone who, has, is, who, who, who can be listened to. So I don't think those old-fashioned building of, as you say, of, of relationships have gone away, um, but in some ways become even more important as we deal with this really challenging information environment. I don't think we always let a public diplomacy is kind of the foundation or the stage that all the other diplomacy is built upon. And uh, certainly when I joined in 1990, the United States had the sense that you know, we represented the right and the good and everyone would just understand that. Mm -hmm. And intervening years have made it very clear that we have a lot more work to do in order to, you know, convey that, to communicate that, and to honestly admit when that goes awry. Um, but having, you know, done the job that Yuri is in now at a time when we were really being, for example, pushed out of Russia, uh, losing the ability to conduct much public mm -hmm. diplomacy there, we worked very hard to build platforms in the region to still reach those Russians that we could, right? Um, for me, this is a real example of the challenges that we face in this day and age. And as, you know, as Ambassador Heflin said, you do not have time to sit around and craft a response. Like this has to be a very immediate conversation to counter disinformation and misinformation in this modern world. And it took us a long time to get there, but I think that the State Department now is much better able to have those real-time conversations. Mm -hmm. I was working in public diplomacy uh, 12 years ago when we were first coming onto social media. It was a painful time mm -hmm. to have this giant ship of state learn how to communicate in 14 characters, uh, 140 characters, sorry, on Twitter in its original configuration mm -hmm. was just misery. But um, we've, we've come a long way since mm -hmm. then. But the work is endless, right? Mm -hmm. This is an absolutely dynamic conversation in the modern mm -hmm. world. So with that, actually, I want to turn to Ambassador Kim, and I'll go back to, to Gia. I mean, you're, you're still serving the U.S. government and see in, in the job that uh, uh, Marine uh, had some years earlier, and I was also in the European Bureau. But, I mean, so as you look at this and how she's framed it, do you see, and your experience in Albania and elsewhere, do you see some places where the United States and the Republic of Korea could work more, sort of, do you like kind of consciously together? So we, we saw the conversation in Seoul about... Uh, working in the Indo-Pacific, and you're in the European area, but you know, Europe and to Central Asia, what do you see as, in a, in a way, implicitly, you did that when you were, you know, by being the U.S. ambassador to Albania and having the, the, the Korean experience, if you like, but do you see some, some more kind of organized ways in which we might work together on these, this, in this area of 
not only disinformation, but but uh, on our broader broader goals of of, of shared values, uh, which are given much emphasis by our by our two presidents. I think there are areas where we can plan and be deliberate about our cooperation. Um, so, for example, um, being very conscious in describing to others around us what we see happening in the world. I don't think anybody here would disagree with the notion that we are uh, facing a tremendous historic challenge. And um, nothing concentrates the minds and policies of countries as threats do. That's the reality. So it's not as though the United States and Japan and Korea just all of a sudden decided, hey, you know, it's time to sing Kumbaya. Um, the reality is, is I think all three countries, um, leaders um, supported by the sentiment of the public have concluded, hey, we better kind of get real here about what the challenges are um, and uh, concluded that we are better off facing these challenges together rather than separately. So I think that's what we're seeing. There is a part that we can't control, though. And I think it goes to, um, yeah, I'm just making this up right now, um, the difference between um, um, information and sentiment. Um, the information, governments are always going to lag behind in responding to um, disinformation. But I think if we have done our job as diplomats, taking advantage of um, uh, the, the cultural elements, the changes that, that we see around us, um, that we should be able to have built a solid enough foundation, as Maureen says, um, that the sentiment remains in our favor. Um, so I'll be a little bit controversial and um, I'll say one thing. So, you know, when I was in Albania and during lockdown, I watched a lot of Korean drama, okay? And what was really, did. yeah, everyone did, yeah. But here's what bothered me. I mean, there's so much about it that's fantastic. You know, when you watch K-drama, you get the sense that Koreans are like hardy people. You know, we've gone, gone through um, a difficult history, but uh, Koreans persevere, and now they're just they're totally hip and, you know, uh, totally cool. Um, but I watch it also through the lens of, uh, of a diplomat and as an American, a Korean-American. And I have to say that I was a little bit troubled that in uh, almost all of these K-dramas, to the extent that America or Americans make an appearance, mm -hmm. they're not the heroes. It's usually mm -hmm. like, um, you know, what was I watching? I think I was watching like, um, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Designated Survivor. Oh, yeah. Right? Uh, and I think that that's the one that involves the plot of, you know, trade negotiations with the Americans right. and the Americans the are being jerks and they walk out and the, the general is making all these crazy threats. But that's not unique. So I do worry about what that um, creates. Um, uh, I'm happy that when Koreans appear in American movies, in general, you know, they're portrayed as really innovative um, and quirky. 
um, and on the cutting edge. Uh, so that type of cultural sentiment, I think, is really important to watch. And to the extent that um, we can encourage a more updated version of the relationship between the United States and America and between Americans and Koreans, I think we're going to be better off as we look to the future. Mm. Well, I'm going to turn now for a comment from <laughs> Ambassador Son, although I'm not to be, I, my complaint about, about the K-dramas is when they have foreign actors, they're horrible actors. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm sorry, I'm not, but, but. But you know, the, the, I think, um, it, I think, you know, if you watch Korean dramas or Korean films and dramas, there are, you know, Koreans are, um, are portrayed as very hardy, but there's not a, a, a beautified aspect of Korean life or life in Korea. I mean, that's not what, um, uh, what Kizeng Chung, for a moment now, I can't, um, Parasite, Parasite is, is about, um, you know, no prosecutor who, who's now become president, no prosecutor in Korean film or Korean drama has ever been portrayed as a nice, you know, person. There, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of um, very hard hitting um, parts about Korean drama. And I think um, that is that is sort of the beauty of it in a way, because it's not so much, you know, this is reality, but it sort of pinpoints maybe what we should be um, aware of and maybe, you know, guard against. Um, it, it's, it's like, I guess someone was telling me again, um, the reason we watch scary movies is not to be scared, but but we watch scary movies not to be scared of real life. I mean, we put this in the dramas not to not because they're they're the total truth, but to be aware that there is a possibility and and things that we must um, be aware of. And I think that that may be one of the things that we take away from from how America's are is portrayed. Maybe it's something that we we take and and think about and discuss and see if there's a there's something that we need to work together to you know make better so it, it, these are you know, i think culture is not um is a in terms of how um united states and korea work together can be a very positive for a relationship and, I, and that's sort of the beauty of how a democratic system um deals with with culture i think and 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 again that's one of the reasons that makes korean culture so popular um that it's it's not just you know a beautifying of one sort of a, a, um, aspect of another and despite the fact that i agree with you that american actors in korean dramas are just so horrible um, they're just pulled off the street somewhere, you know. I don't. Well, think. well, I, 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 I yeah, they, they are, they are a little yeah, better. True. Um, but you know, um, it is they could be portrayed better, I think, um, know, the, with better actors. Yeah. <laughs> but but. The, so can I connect what mm -hmm. he's just said, uh, what Ambassador Son has just said about um, you know the um, the the themes that Korean pop culture explores. Mm -hmm as a diplomat and as somebody um, whose job it is to think about how we message to the world and how we connect with as many different countries and people as possible. Um, what I love about Korea and what I think is so important and that we should do more with is the fact that Korea and Koreans can speak to different audiences than the United States can. 
right? I think that there is something that um, about Korea's history and um, to the extent that there's such a thing as national character, national character that says to the G77, right? Those who are not in the G7 or the G20 that says to the rest of the world, here's what's possible. I feel your pain. We're going to get through this. Mm -hmm. There is a sense of sympathy and empathy. And also, if you look at Korean history, optimism despite the odds. And that's a story that I think um, Korea um, can tell in a powerful way that um, Americans can, you know, we can tell it in different ways. But mm -hmm. in this moment, it, it's, it's a pretty important element, yeah? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a little bit less baggage in, in the way in the way that Korean is able to tackle these very difficult topics. Right. I mean, yeah. we're talking about um, just the recent one that I saw talking about a mental ward. I mean, we're talking about subjects that that are difficult for anybody to really tackle. But um, I was quite surprised at um, the courage it took to tackle such a difficult. Mm -hmm task and in the end actually did quite well with it. So um, I think it is sort of a, a sense that um, th there's nothing off limits. Mm -hmm. um, we'll, we'll tackle it, but it's not, um, maybe there, there are different parameters for, I mean, we're not bogged down by certain parameters of other countries and and maybe that's a strength that can combine with you know other strengths that the, that the US has can really push for the beauty of having such diverse um, thoughts and expressions um, that are that that permeate through through mm -hmm. culture and, and cultural products mm -hmm. and I see that actually um, in other I'm just saying that um, although Korea sort of opened the door, when one um, film of of not American um, language wins an Oscar, yeah, yeah. it opens the door a too, yeah. for a lot of other cultures mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. yeah, even even more geopolitical level, when I think of Korea, I also think of something that was very stark to me in Bosnia and Herzegovina. You have a very clear national identity, right? It's not that everybody agrees every day, but a Korean knows who they are and what their country represents. Uh, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, this is one of the biggest challenges, right? You have three people who ethnically are really all the same, but come from such different historic backgrounds, um, different religions, different you know languages, all those completely understandable to each other. Um, and so one thing I would encourage Korea to consider is a broader diplomatic presence, right? There were no Koreans in Bosnia and Herzegovina, except for the two years one of my diplomats was there with a spouse, right? Um, there is one ambassador in Croatia for the entire Balkan region. Uh, and I do think that, as Kathy started this conversation with, that it could be a very important partnership for us. Um, at least in Bosnia, Japan did play an important role, but they also just bring a different perspective and background. They don't have some of that honest struggle that uh, Ambassador Son was referring to. And I think it, it sort of is reflected in, in the most recent um, government policies, you know, political policies. You know, the global pivotal state um, is, in a way, what it is is that Korea, um, after you know uh, several decades of being 
um, supported and aided and, you know, and, as, and through such aid um, has become, you know, it, the economic powerhouse and the cultural uh, phenomenon that it has today. And it is now time for Korea to really step up and speak up and, and really support our allies and play a part that it hadn't played before. And so I think it, it does really um, reflect where we need to go. Yeah. These are terrific insights. I, I want to tell the audience both here and online that I'm going to turn in a few minutes. Uh, so get your comments and questions ready, I'm sure. And I maybe I'll turn to Ambassador Heflin. I want to return to the, the point that I think Ambassador Kim and some others raised. And it really is, or I'm going to put it in my own words, but it's the tension, if you like, between, so we're talking about disinformation. I mean, the best way to, you know, this was not the specific point you were making, Yuri, but, but extrapolating from what you said, you know, if, if we're going to deal with disinformation, in a way, the easiest way is to say, well, you know, shut down the internet, you know, let's, let's, let's impose controls. But, you know, the tension is between our democratic values, the, the, the importance we attach to freedom of expression and freedom of, of, of speech, uh, and, and our desire to address challenges to our security uh, and destabilizing things. And, and I, by extension, this is, if we're talking about uh, cultural products that don't show the United States in a favorable way, in a way, I would, would hate to see the, and I don't think you're implying this, the, you know, movie, they wouldn't do it anyway, but the Korean movie directors decide, well, you know, let's, let's show a nicer way or the Korean government telling the movie directors, you know, America's our friend. Why don't you lighten up a little bit there? Um, because we've seen what that looks like, too. I mean, I lived in a career like that in the 1970s and the 1980s, and that's one of the reasons that anti-Americanism grew. You know, there's nothing like the fresh air of exposure in my view, I'm kind of to to you know address these issues, but nonetheless, it's not easy. And I, you know, you make you make a really important point. And I think when it gets to the disinformation space, the uh, the digital world we're in now, it's a huge challenge. We 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 can't ignore it. And and to me, it's one of the biggest challenges of our time. So, over to you. I was invited several times to be the evil foreigner in Bollywood films. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I chose to turn it down. Oh, oh. Uh, I actually think, you know, when I was talking about information operations, I said, you, you have to be honest. It's not always easy, but you have to be honest and also fast. Uh, on the cultural side, fast isn't as important. It takes a long time to make a TV drama or a movie. Yeah. But I think the honesty works. If you, for instance, there's countries, I'm not going to name names, but you can guess who a couple of them are. All our cultural exports are upbeat. You know, everything's fine in our country. We have no problems. Our allies are the best allies ever. Our enemies are the worst people ever. Um, in Korean drama, you know, if you see, okay, there's some aspects of Korean society, like conditions inside mental health facilities that aren't so good. Um, generally speaking, we love Americans, but man, they're not perfect. You know, look at this evil foreigner in, in our latest movie. I think that's okay because that gives the Korean cultural exports an honest voice. Um, it's not all upbeat. It's not all, mm -hmm. there's no problems here or anywhere in the world. And then when you have that base, you know, of honesty, when you have to get across a particular message, you'll be listened to. Mm -hmm. um, I think, in a way, cultural operations and information, I mean, we've always acknowledged in the U.S. system that information and culture are there's a big overlap between the mm -hmm. two. And I think that's true with Korea's efforts also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right, I'm going to turn to the audience here. Uh, Mr. Fitzpatrick, you're, uh, wait, for, wait for a microphone so everyone can hear you out there in the digital world. 
Uh, thanks, Mark Fitzpatrick. Uh, I'm on the board here at KEI. Uh, this is fantastic. This is the best panel I've been to. And Kathy, you're He's going out. Board. That's good. <laughs> you're going out on a high note. I, six ambassadors on here. I mean, I when have we had that before? That's wonderful. Just on this um, uh, issue of the tension between uh, culture and information that Ambassador Heflin introduced. I, I was strapped down uh, the other day. I had three hours. I had to do something at a Red Cross giving blood, and I had to watch something. I had access to thousands of movies, Netflix, uh, uh, I mean, Amazon Prime. And so I chose a Korean, <laughs> a Korean drama. Um, it, it was, and I justified it to myself because I thought I would, I would learn more about North Korea, my area. It was uh, crashing to me. Yeah, of course, <laughs> crash landing. And and I did learn. I learned how nice North Korea is. You know, they're well fed. They're happy. They have big houses, lots of food, and and um, I just, you know, as you said, Kathy, in, in days past, uh, Korean government wouldn't have allowed allowed this probably. Right. And I'm just wondering, is there any, uh, maybe Ambassador Soen, is is there any impulse to try to, you know, discourage this, or do you, or maybe it's so cartoonish that it doesn't uh, really help North Korea's image like it might otherwise. Well, I mean, I, I, I try. I like to say that you know, um, not so much maybe crash landing on you because it's a, it depicts a very very dramatic um, uh, way of North Korea. But you know, when Parasite won the Oscars, when Squid Game became so popular, um, I had diplomats from other countries I won't name um, really come and whisper to me. Is your government okay with this? And I and I turned to him and said, "What are you talking about?" And he said, "You know, it's it paints a really um, like a dark picture of Korean society. Um, is your government okay with this?" And I and it never occurred to me to to even thought, think about that. And and honestly, I have never met a Korean government who ever turned to me and said, "You know, we should maybe tone that down," or you know. Um, maybe not make, maybe not uh, promote Parasite much. We've been promoting like, you know, to no end. Um, but I think it's, it's because, I mean, we have had so much diversity in terms of our cultural product. I mean, a lot of it is, is dark, but we have light ones. You know, we have ones that are overly light, like, like the crash landing on you about North Korea. Um, but it's also about I mean, to, to be able to show, yeah, to have that much. But, you know, look, look at crash landing on you. I mean, I, it, I, I really think there is a, yeah, like, really, but, um, but it, it, it goes, drills into really a more humanist, humanistic um, connection rather than, you know, looking at more the political aspect of it. And I think, you know, that kind of... Um, you know, honing in on what really is is, a, is an important um, part of a story um, really allows you know all the all the other things to take a part you know take their role as being sort of you know secondary um, and and allowing you the freedom of of trying to do and you know delve into subjects that are quite difficult you know like North Korea being in North Korea. Um, all these different things that the Mental Institute I was talking about. So it, it is sort of what uh, makes Korean dramas so interesting, so diverse. Okay. Uh, yeah. 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 
Hi, my name is Michael Curtis. I'm with American Councils for International Education. We are honored, of course, to administer many State Department-funded uh, public diplomacy and education programs in South Korea and elsewhere, Albania, Bosnia-Herzegovina. I, I wanted to ask a question, though, about this banking of pennies, and I'm wondering what we can do as a community to start banking nickels instead of pennies in this relationship. Yeah. It would be hard to do much better in cultural diplomacy than Korea already has. Um, I, some countries engage in public diplomacy because they feel like they have a serious need to at a particular point in time. You know, they're unpopular overseas. Um, they've got a big international armed conflict going on. Um, South Korea did it when it didn't have such a strong need and has put a lot of pennies in the banks over, I don't know when most of you date the Korea wave too. I would say what, 20 years ago, give or take. Um, and, and to my mind, the big jumpstart in, in the wave was, it was almost pure luck. Uh, the Korean government started supporting more its domestic TV dramas and movies at the same time that satellite networks and cable television all throughout Asia were hungry for content. It's, hungry for content and Korea was producing very high quality content. Um, all that time uh, putting pennies in the bank has, has really paid off. Uh, we've heard alluded to the latest polling numbers on South Korean and American views of each other. I'm gonna take an educated guess that South Korea's polling numbers are high in a lot of countries in the world. Yes. I'm a Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former uh, foreign service officer. I note that uh, one of the biggest entertainments in Kazakhstan is Korean dramas. As much as I'd like to see Korea replace Modi's India in the quad, I uh, don't expect that anytime soon. And I don't really expect Korea to uh, assume a very aggressive role uh, if, if China moves against Taiwan. But I think one of the greatest acts of public diplomacy would be for Korea to clarify that whatever assets we have in South Korea would be available for uh, countermanding uh, China's activities against Taiwan. That is particularly unclear now, and it would be very useful if Korea could uh, establish a policy that, that, that points out that even though we're not participating, uh, American assets in South Korea are available to the Americans, maybe even to the Japanese, and uh, to get that message out. Because when the thing goes down, you got 48 hours or 72 hours to make that decision. And it's not gonna happen unless it's made now in advance. Does anybody wanna take that? I mean, I, 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 I would, so maybe if you look at the, the public uh, announcements and declarations we made over the last year or so uh, in our various summits and so on, you see an increasingly uh, specific you know, addressing of some of these issues. I mean, that begins with a policy decision about how you express it. So I'm going to turn his if he wants to, to, to continue. But I think that's, um, that's 
the conversation has begun in a way that, that it really didn't, uh, I mean, a, a few years ago, and that has to do with changes in the world, but also has to do with what our leaders are willing to kind of put out on the table. But I think that's a that's an iterative process. I wish Ambassador Show was still here. So we I know, I know. There we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did a timely exit. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, yes, back here in the in the blue jacket. Hi, In Jung Cho with the Voice of America. I have a question for Ambassador Yuri Kim, um, pertaining to your position as the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of European and Eurasian Affairs. How concerned are you about um, North Korea providing ammunition to Russia? How is North Korean provision of ammunition impacting the war in Ukraine? And over the weekend, the national security advisors of South Korea, US, and Japan met in Korea. And they also discussed the war in Ukraine and how North Korea is providing ammunition to Russia. How can the three countries together specifically do to de deter North Korean provision of um, ammunition to Russia? Thank you. Thank you for that very difficult <laughs> question. <laughs> um, it, I thought she was going to break from yeah. her day job by coming here to talk about Korea, but you're never going to break from your day it's job. A, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question, and it's an important question. Um, I think it, you know, we, we are watching very carefully what um, Russia is doing, not only with North Korea, but also with Iran and with China. When it comes to Russia and China, they have a special uh, responsibility to behave in ways that contribute to world security, and yet they are doing exactly the opposite at this point, Russia in particular. Um, we've never had a situation in which um, a permanent member of the UN Security Council is so fragrantly um, violating all, not, not just the UN Charter, but all the various Security Council resolutions that Russia itself voted for, mm -hmm. including Security Council resolutions that um, restrict and prohibit North Korea from engaging in ballistic missile tests, uh, from developing its nuclear weapons program. Um, uh, and then, of course, there are um, U.S. and EU-imposed sanctions related to um, uh, enabling Russia's uh, voluntary um, and unlawful war against Ukraine. So we are concerned, um, and we will look at the array of tools that are available to the United States government. I think we will also be working very closely, as we have been, with our EU uh, partners, with NATO allies, um, and with other allies like Korea, Japan, um, and other members of the uh, G7 uh, partnership um, to try and tackle this problem. It is not acceptable for Russia uh, and North Korea to be engaged in this kind of trade. Um, and that's the kindest thing uh, I think that we can say about that. Perfect. Thank you, Ambassador Kim. Thank you. Um, yes, in front there. Good morning, Chong Wen Lee, professor at North Greenville University. My question is back to public diplomacy. So just as the role of Korean diaspora in the U.S. is important to public diplomacy, I'm curious about the role of U.S. diaspora living and working in South Korea. What kind of role do they also play in our bilateral diplomacy? Thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I think also, I mean, 
that group is also a very important group. Um, there was not a big diaspora um, in the, before this, but increasingly, um, this group is growing. I teach a graduate school um, at Iwa Women's University, and I have 15 students in my class, and three of them are American. Um, you know, the rest are from all over the world, but three of them are American. They're not on, uh, you know, a, a grant of some sort. They came to Korea, enrolled at Iwa Women's University because they wanted to come to Korea to study. So we are seeing an increasing number of, of young um, Americans, and, and in part because of, of the cultural pull. Um, and there, there's a curiosity about Korea. There's a curiosity um, about studying in Korea and possibly then making Korea their foundation for Asian studies. Um, and so there, that is a very important group. It's, it's growing. Um, and there are a lot of actually, you know, we are starting to, um, you have a lot of programs aimed at um, this group. A sort of so that this group can um, have a better understanding of Korea, of Korean culture, um, so that you know as they study and as they become part of the global community, their basic foundation will be a very solid knowledge about Korea, and that will be a very um, I think positive development for Korea-U.S. relations. Um, I, I think it's you know. The, the two-way um, relationship is always a, a very positive thing. And it's time we add more Americans um, in, in South Korea. Yeah. The nature, of course, of the American presence in South Korea over the years has been quite yeah. different. It's been than, different. It's, it's, it's a different. But, but I, I think this point about right, so many Korean students in the United States over the years, not so many American students in, the, in, in, in Korea, but that, that, that is, a is very really changing. Relationship. Uh, and yeah. and it's, it's very important. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, all the way in the back there. Lots of questions, so we'll try to, that's good. And if we have some online, someone will, we don't want to leave our online people. Yes, please. Okay, thank you for this panel. And I'm uh, Emel Akan uh, from the Epoch Times. It's founded by Chinese Americans living in the United States. We are the fourth largest newspaper now in terms of paid subscribers. We recently covered a story about Korea and uh, State Department raised concerns about this. Uh, we learned that um, the Chinese embassy is putting pressure on Korean theaters to block an American performing arts group, Shen Yun. And this group is performing all around the world, but it cannot perform in South Korea. And it has been happening for years. I would like to get your comments on this, Ambassador Son and Ambassador Kim. And how can both democracies, US and Korea, work together to counter China's influence in such incidents? Thank you. I don't think I know enough about that to um, comment, sorry. I, Neither do I, but just to say that um, you know we're gonna we're gonna try to keep um, culture as open as possible. Um, but specific cases, I'm really not um, well informed enough to really tell you what can be done or what actually should be done. Sorry about that. Anyone else, uh, Mark? Yeah, thank you, Mark Tokola from KEI. When I was in Syria in the late 1970s, one thing I heard almost every day was, we love the United States, we hate the United States government. So is that a failure or a success of public diplomacy? <laughs> you know, should the goal of US public diplomacy in Korea be to increase affection to the United States or trust in the US government? Mm. 
Well, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's an excellent question. I mean, the real driving force behind both self-power and uh, public diplomacy is to make people in other countries feel good about you so that when you go to their government with an ask, uh, they're more favorably disposed. So it sounds like in the example you're giving in Syria back in the day that only the first half of that was happening. People were favorably disposed towards the American people, but thought our government and its policy stunk. Okay. I guess one of the questions there would be whether it was kind of a deep-seated uh, suspicion of the U.S. government that goes back 30, 40 years, or if it was more of a problem with current times, current policies. If it's current times and current policies, it's still worth it to lay that groundwork of support among the populace for when you eventually get policies and and political figures and governments that are more sellable to the local population. If it's really deep-seated, if they're going to distrust the U.S. government no matter what our current policy is and what our current leadership is, then the public diplomacy is probably not working that well in that country. It probably needs to be recalibrated, if possible. I mean, there's some countries where their relationship with the U.S., you know, in recent history just hasn't been good and it's, it has to do with their geostrategic location or the role they play uh, in a particular conflict. Uh, you know, maybe Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill in those kind of cases. But I, I think in most cases, going, sowing the seeds um, is well, well worth doing, even if it doesn't have immediate results. Yeah, I think we could probably all cite, I mean, examples from our own careers where, and I'm, I'm thinking of being in, in South Korea in the 1980s when I met with a lot of students who were, you know, very, very critical of, of U.S. policy and perceived U.S. policy. So part of the effort was to say maybe, you know, there's a fuller understanding that, you know, and more information we can bring to bear. So it's not just about the cultural content, it's about information as well, as you were saying. But uh, but even with that, they would say, and this 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 is the uh, kind of a penny in the bank. They would say, with a minute, you know, we, yeah, exactly that. We don't, you know, we want to study in the United States. You know, we uh, we have family in the U.S. But um, uh, and that's the that's the, the 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 foundation for something where yes, they may be critical of the policy, but it's uh, it's 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 different from an ideological sort of stance or or and obviously it can kind of bleed into one or the other. I didn't say that very well, but all right. Do we have any online? I want to make sure. Or I think we're okay. All right. So yes, um, yes, sir. I'm Kevin Killing. I stayed in Hawaii in the early 80s, and uh, there are crossroads, and there was two direction. Um, the the um, religions were mixing kind of like crossroads. Um, in, in World War II, the Japanese weren't locked up. The, the, they, they had a lot more um, confidence that people could get along there. And there was a lot of respect for Koreans. And the, and the religion was two ways too. So the, the Christian religion was more of an empire religion and the, the Buddhist is more of a natural thing. And that was accepted everywhere. Like there's a stress center at Yale and there's you know, holistic um, clinics everywhere. So, so I just wanted to, to add the cultural influence of religion was two ways. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Um 
we're almost out of time. I want to give everyone a chance to make any kind of uh, final comments. Um, I'm going to make one, and then I'll maybe start at this this aim uh, uh, with Don, and come this way. Um, I wanted to go back to I, I'm kind of taken with this pennies in the bank. It's a long time since I have a piggy bank, but and, and nickels in the bank, or maybe we're, but. Um, uh, and I guess, you know, I was thinking about this in, in, in terms of Korean policy. I, there's a lot I could say about U.S. too, I guess. But I, I think Korea has done a lot of things right. But I actually, it goes back to one of the earlier things. I think that the, the, the area of Korean language education and the, uh, the interest in it is so huge here. I mean, it really is literally off the charts in terms of people wanting to study Korean. And I think that in terms of Korean government activity, it's become pretty... Uh, maybe it's changed a little bit now, but but it's been it's been so focused on we only deal with universities and kind of elite level. You need to get people younger, and you need to get people outside of 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 the major cities uh, because this is something that it, going again to Don and everybody else's point that if the point of sort of public diplomacy is to have the especially in a democracy, the the constituents who think this is important, or I have a positive attitude, I've heard of South Korea, something, I mean, it can be, you know, then, then you, you, you can't always, you know, just talk to the usual suspects. And you can't always, you know, reach young people when they're already, you know, in university, you have to start younger. And I think this is a huge opportunity for Korea and for its public diplomacy. That's my little pitch. But um, Don, I'm going to start with you and come back this way. No, I, I think that's correct. I think the, um, the biggest lessons I'm taking away from here today are one, again, kudos to Korea, both as a government and, and as a country. I think the population did a lot of this people to people uh, for their uh, outstanding cultural uh, diplomacy and also their economic diplomacy. Um, you have put a lot of pennies in the bank all around the world. Uh, now we all come to grips with the information side of it. Um, as we were developing public diplomacy over the last six decades since the phrase was invented at Fletcher. Um, uh, we had a model that worked fairly well. Uh, sometimes it wasn't that easy to get your message across, particularly if you were defending something that was hard to defend, but it worked fairly well and we all understood it. Now with social media, the velocity of information has gotten to be so fast uh, and the advent of the trolls. We've got to change that model. We have been. Uh, the US, Korea, other countries have been changing it. We've got to stay very nimble and try and stay ahead of these guys. And it's not always going to be easy. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I agree with everything that's already been said. Uh, watching the growth and development of Korea over these last 30 some years has just been extraordinary. Um, and, and Kathy, Ambassador Stevens, what you said about reaching younger audiences is so true. In 2002, at the nadir of our relationship after that terrible accident, um, we realized that university is way too late to really impact the way somebody thinks, right? It has to start at high school and maybe even at a slightly earlier level. So uh, I would encourage that development. And I just look forward to watching how Korea develops further, how this cultural and public diplomacy aspect develops. And I would love to see Korea become a stronger partner for us in challenging parts of the world. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Korea wave um, and the whole global popularity of Korean culture still to many Koreans is a little awing. I mean, it's like, you can't believe that the world is really, you know, that um, taken with what we've sort of taken for granted for such a long time. Um, 
But we do realize that it, uh, along with that, comes a lot of responsibility. Um, and so I think that is one of the things that, that is now binding um, the U.S. and, and um, ROK uh, closer together, because there is um, there are things that we need to work together on, um, and you know the information area is just one of them, and the, and because of the you know the the penny, pennies in the bank or you know now dollars at, at this point. Um, there is a, there is a role that we can play to support a, a common goal, um, you know. And for a long time, we were we were just the recipients, and we were you know we received a lot of support from the United States to be able to grow. But at this stage, there is a certainly um, a, a role that we can do to support now, um, you know, the the the. The, the goals that common goals for both countries and I think um, this kind of public um, diplomacy um, is very crucial in going forward so that we are able to coordinate and play those um, roles along with the United States. Thank you so much for the opportunity to um, speak with all of you today. Um, 70 years is Pretty good long time, um, and, and it's been amazing to see how much the relationship, the balance of the relationship, the character of the relationship between the United States and Korea has changed in those 70 years, and in particular over the last, I would say, 20 years. It's really um, become something quite different in the last few years. Um, I think we're now positioning the relationship to play a major role in the future. So I like this idea that this is about an alliance for the future um, between countries uh, that have more to share, um, more to give to each other um, with um, a greater sense of mutual contribution, mutual agency, mutual benefit, um, and mutual respect that at, than at any time in the, in the past. So um, I'm really optimistic about the future of the relationship, and I'm looking forward to um, doing what I can um, to contribute to that. You're forward deployed in the Bureau of yes. European Affairs. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Thank you. Very well said by everyone. And I hope everyone will join me in, in, in thanking our extraordinary panel. You've given us a lot to really think about and to work on, and I hope we'll be working on it together. So thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. For more Korea content, keep an eye on our podcast feed.